Welcome to our seventh episode of Sorry Cheshire Cat. Joining me on this episode to talk about sci-fi classics is Alex Hughes, who for the last few years has run the Sci-Fi Classics Book Club at the wonderful Seattle bookstore, Ada's. Admittedly, talking sci-fi is a bit out of my element, or should I say my fifth element? Or wait, is that a sci-fi movie? Or is that an action movie? Or both? This has been my main query throughout the whole episode, and Alex, gentleman that he is, provides both definition and example to me again and again. But he also gets into the good stuff, of course, when I don't interrupt him. My favorite aspect was not our in-depth talk about what the sci-fi canon is and who is included and excluded, which I loved as well, but that much of Alex's love of this genre comes from its readiness to be, or perhaps expectation to be, marveled, to find wonderment in space, in tech, in biology. The joy and merriment in being awed by grandeur and newness is sort of rare in contemporary literature, but sci-fi necessitates the celebration behind creativity and that freedom of emotion, which I, I think kind of aligns it with this podcast well. But I think also, as Alex pointed out, it connects with another main theme in sci-fi, which is human resilience and human endurance in the face of trauma and tragedy or in startling newness. It reminds me also of one of the authors that Alex does mention, which is Kurt Vonnegut in Slaughterhouse-Five, where his characters suffering from PTSD resort to reading science fiction as a method of engagement. He says, so they were trying to reinvent themselves and their universe. Science fiction was a big help. It's a really wonderful way to look at that genre. And I know it's kind of changed my idea of what science fiction is and how people relate to it. And of course, we answered the most important question. How do you make sandwiches in space? Thank you, Alex, for your research, your joy, and your humor. I had so much fun with this episode. I hope you will, too. I'm sorry, Jessica, but you don't belong in this story. This is Mary Thompson, and I'm here with Alex Hughes talking about 19th to 20th century English-American science fiction. Welcome, Alex. Thanks, Mary. We're drinking... Cheers. <laughs> We're drinking Shirley Temples today to celebrate all the fun that we're about to have. <laughs> when I asked you to do this podcast, I kind of expected you to choose um, something sci-fi related because mm-hmm. I know that uh, you've been leading uh, the classical science fiction book club at Ada's for the, over the last three years. Um, right. So I kind of expected it would something about either fiction or science fiction, mm-hmm. um, but I kind of wanted to know why you chose specifically this and, yeah, your reason behind it. Sure. Um, well, I, over, like you said, over the last three and a half years, I've been reading, leading this uh, classic science fiction book club, and it started uh, shortly after I got hired at Ada's. There was already a couple uh, book clubs running, and mm-hmm. Ada's at that time was a very tiny little bookstore uh, in this removed, quiet little neighborhood in, in Capitol Hill. And on a given day, anywhere from like six to 12 people would come in. Um, and while I was working 
at least some of them I would try to like capture and talk to for like 30 to 45 minutes and yeah. some people would be into it. it it was really fun but there was also a tremendous amount of downtime like kind of your classic bookstore job right um the result of which is you spend a lot of time straightening shelves and or reading which is great uh it's one of the perks of working in a bookstore so i had always kind of i like science fiction and i'll talk a little bit about that um but as far as reading science fiction uh, I was feeling a lot of anxiety when I started there because there was a ton of kind of classic powerhouse SF that I had never read, like mm-hmm. Brave New World and 1984, um, Handmaid's Tale. It was like assigned in high school, but I never read it. You I know, just and, read Handmaid's Tale. Oh, I love <laughs> yeah. it. It's, it's really great. So yes. there's there's these books that a lot of people I had known said, mm-hmm. oh, you have to read these, or, or I just had seen referenced or whatever, um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, for example, right. you know and never had so um a friend of mine who was a little bit more versed in sf than i was and actually he graduated from seattle u in 2008 and when he was there there was a science fiction specific class that he took where he read Le Guin and 2001 and asimov's foundation he uh kind of encouraged me to start this book club so it started off as a uh twice a month thing where we we burned through a bunch of books in the summer some of these heavy hitters, and then it became a monthly book club after that. Mm. Um, so over the last three and a half years, I've been reading a lot. But when you asked me to do this podcast and I was figuring out what I would be able to talk about and settled on science fiction, I started to think about when did I really start getting into science fiction yeah. and came to the realization that as far back as I can remember, so probably three, four years old, one of the first movies I ever saw and to this day watch at least once a year, usually twice, is the Transformers animated movie from 1986. <laughs> and uh, I also vividly remember waking up very early in the morning to watch the Generation 1 cartoons on uh, on the Sci-Fi Channel, getting up okay, at like 4.30 yeah. in the morning and watching oh those. And as I thought more about this, I came to realize how much the Transformers, especially kind of the aesthetic of Transformers, has influenced my taste throughout my life. Mm-hmm. So after you finish listening to this podcast, <laughs> check out the Generation 1 um, cartoon theme song. And the the sound of that song is kind of like, I, I, I have the contention that everybody kind of has like a, a formula of song that is their favorite kind of type of song. Okay. And it may transcend genres, that sort of thing, but there's kind of like a, a formula that's your jam and it comes okay. up like in a lot of different ways. And, I want to hear um, more about this theory, but... <laughs> so, so for me, it definitely is very real and it's like minor key and it's kind of three chords wow. and it's a chord progression that leads back into itself and kind of repeats. And when you hear this theme song, that's totally what this is like, as well as horns, uh, uh, like brass instruments, right, are, okay. are integral and um, group vocals. My favorite music in high school, hands down, was ska music. Still okay. something that I listen to. Yeah. Listen to a lot of punk, which has a similar kind of uh, kind of sound. Yeah. And so that that really just kind of influenced my tastes in general. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the movie, like I said, I've watched it a tremendous amount of times, but also just kind of the um, the spirit of it is something that I've seen kind of come up again in my in my tastes. Mm. So. Uh, I guess how rooted the Transformers is and kind of my just general feeling towards life is uh, part of the reason why I 
I gravitate towards science fiction and it being something that I was introduced to so early on. Um, so that, and then I also very vividly remember uh, watching Empire Strikes Back mm. and the opening scene is the, the battle on Hoth. And uh, in both of these scenarios, they're kind of, you know, the classic, like Americanized or uh, I guess like American mid 20th century or late 20th century uh, SF where there's spaceships and there's, you know, um, good versus evil battle. Yeah. And, and throughout all of that, there's the technological wonders. And I think that really is a thing about science fiction that I love to think about is um, the different ways in which technological wonders are not only pervasive throughout our lives, but the way that humans react to them. Um, okay. And how easy it is seemingly for, for people to be introduced to something totally crazy, like a talking robot that turns into a vehicle. Um, <laughs> or for a more like grounded example, smartphones. Yeah. And maybe at first feel like pretty overwhelmed, like, wow, I can't believe this is a thing. But then slowly or not even slowly, quickly, it's just accepted and it's everywhere. And it's like, oh, this is fine. Right. And then taken for granted. And then it's like, I can't believe my phone doesn't work. Like, this is crazy. But when you stop for a second, it's like, oh, this is like a series of ones and zeros that is like a software that's programming this tiny little rectangle in my hand that's shooting a signal into outer space that's sending that signal back to another device so that I can have immediate real-time communication with somebody on the other side of the globe like that's super crazy mm -hmm. and it's happening around us all the time so uh i've kind of rambled a little bit but no, yeah technological really wonder technological yeah. wonder is interesting i wanted to ask if do you mean in terms of like the sci-fi that you're reading like the character's acceptance of this new fangled thing like a transformer or when you're reading it and you're like, okay, yeah, I accept that this <laughs> um, is happening. I think a little bit of both. Okay. Uh, and it kind of depends. So some science fiction, something that comes to mind is Walter Tevis's The Man Who Fell to Earth. Um, it was turned into a movie mm -hmm. starring David Bowie in like the 1970s. Right. Uh, it's, man Bowie. Yeah. It's super out there, of course. Like, as to be expected. <laughs> as a friend of mine said... Uh, Bowie is more alien than the alien that Walter Tevis describes in the book <laughs> in a lot of ways, um, which I think is, is kind of true. Um, but in that book, he he introduces uh, T.J. Newton is the is the alien. He introduces things like, for example, self developing color film that you take the photos and then you put the 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 film back into its canister and it develops itself and puts out uh, a negative like just yeah. inside of this canister. And when you first find out about it, uh, this other character, Bryce, goes into the, the drugstore and he picks one up and and the, the shop clerk is like, oh yeah, they're selling like hotcakes. I don't know where they came from, but they sure are neat. And it's like, <laughs> that's a really crazy thing to have. And they're just like, yeah, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's like, you know, it's like candy. It's really cool. And uh, But then on the other side of it, being uh, um, reading things like uh, like Dune, for example, right. Frank Herbert's Dune. Um, you know, this he's got interstellar travel where these right. people are using some sort of um, substance, the spice, as yeah. uh, as a method to fold space time and like connect two different points within the universe. And mm -hmm. um, so, 
that is more challenging of the reader. Like, are you yeah. going to accept this as a possibility? And, um, or even just accept it long enough to continue reading the book, um, which mm-hmm. I do, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I've only seen the Dune uh, movie with Lynch's movie. Right, right. Which got a little crazy. Yeah, also very, very strange. That yeah. was a little hard to accept. No, it is. It's, <laughs> it's rough. It's, you know, but it's hard. It's like, I mean, that's an that's interesting thing about SF. I think especially in the last 15 years, science fiction has been very popular for a long time right. and, and been a popular um, genre in film and books and all sorts of media. But uh, it's been increasingly like, widely accepted, I think, in the last 15 years. Definitely. Um, a lot more mainstream, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah which, which is fine, but um, a lot of times the movies are really bad. Which is unfortunate. <laughs> that said, a lot of times the books are really bad too. Like they're not well written necessarily. Uh, yeah. And, I mean, it, it kind of gets rise or got rise popularity out of the pulp. Yeah. Kind of you know in serial format and magazines and stuff, and which I you know like a fair amount about, but uh, not necessarily known for its literary triumph. Although that exists within SF Definitely. as well. Uh, but the concepts are, are like, often very out there and very interesting to yeah, consider. Yeah, like creative, like the ideas sometimes trump form, I guess, or something. I think like, so. Like yeah. literary technique, mm-hmm. because they have such creative ideas and you're willing to right. ignore that in order to find out more, I guess. I think so. I mean, there's a lot of, there can be a lot of value in lots of different things. Right, know, of so. course. But I was thinking about when you were talking about being in love with, and it's also not a technological wonder, but um, I've always been fascinated by, like, fantasy, and it happens in sci-fi, too, when a character is put into a completely new, like, either something truly bizarre is happening to them, or, like, they're in a new world or a new planet or something like that. So, like, I think the classic example is Wizard of Oz with Dorothy, and how, like, she doesn't, she maybe cries one time. And oh, it's like, yeah. oh, I'm sad. Mm-hmm. And like, okay, now I'm doing my thing and I'm mm-hmm. in this new world and I'm going to accomplish all my goals. Yeah. And I've, you know, and the adjustment period is like so, so quick. quick. Yeah. It's like, if I was there, would I be yeah. like, okay, yeah, I'll go down the yellow brick road. <laughs> right. right. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting thing that happens. In but I think it happens in sci-fi a lot, right? It does. And uh, I mean, actually, so to go back to Transformers, there's this episode in in the Generation One series that's probably season two or something. Where, uh, I mean, within within a few episodes, they're fully integrated into the cities and like, walking around and active. Right. And there's there's the bad guys that are trying to kill everyone that everyone's afraid of, but the Autobots have been accepted. And uh, the most recent iterations by Michael Bay, um, which are not very good, you know, for a lot of different reasons. And like, my nephew loves them. I know. And I mean, <laughs> I've seen all of them at least once. And uh, the most recent one was the hardest one to get through. I made it somehow, but it was. I did have to do the second one multiple times. Yeah. They're, they're rugged. <laughs> they're rugged. But for a lot of reasons. But, uh, you know, that's. I mean, the whole. The entire um, Transformers is based off of a commercial. I mean, Hasbro. Like, commissioned the cartoons which was very right. common in the 1980s anyways to to sell toys right and the movie actually the 1986 movie was made so they could kill off like the first 
series oh. of toys and then introduce a whole second series wow. of toys. Yeah. 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 It's pretty, <laughs> like it's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. You know, Orson Welles is a voice in the, it's the last movie he ever did. He was a voice. In I remember seeing that. Who, yeah. who is he the voice of? The voice of Unicron, which is a giant planet that eats other planets. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> He, his only quote is something like, oh, I don't know, some jar, large monster or something. He, he had really had no idea. He's, it's kind of, it's like funny and also sad. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but there's there's this episode in the first generation where they're, they're, uh, they're walking around the city of New York and they go into a dance club, like two of these Transformers that are really hip and cool and they're like break dancing in a dance club, right? It's like really ridiculous. And... The other patrons in the club come like, oh man, like cool digs, like fresh, fresh outfit. Where'd you get that, man? He's like, Cybertron. He's like, what's that? What's up, John? <laughs> but it's like that suspension or that just acceptance. Um, it's very weird. And I think there's a number of ways you can view it. One is it's lazy. It's like, you know, or can be like, lazy is not the right word, but just like, all right, let's just kind of skip that part so that we can just start to explore it existing. And, and yeah, it would be really hard and, and people would maybe have like a meltdown, but that's not fun necessarily. So yeah. like, let's look at the part of, all right, it's been accepted. Now what happens? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in the case of Transformers, I think it's a little bit different cause it's just like, it's fun. It's a kid's cartoon. Right. right? But, but in, uh, in books and stuff, I think that, I don't know, it's, it's maybe a problem of, um, characterization or um maybe not a problem but rather that in itself is just kind of an interesting part about a lot of characters that come up in sf is that they uh you know are able to persevere or are so committed to perseverance that regardless of what they're what's happening around them um i think i don't know not that i feel like i can necessarily speak with authority on this but i think a lot of people when going through some sort of traumatic or overwhelming event um have a surprising amount of power to get through it and it's only after the fact that when you yeah, begin to reflect true. that you're like mm-hmm, yeah. yeah yeah like, holy <laughs> shit like, i can't believe that just happened to me you know yeah and uh that is so really like, true maybe there's a little bit of that going on too i mean it's yeah. human, it, human beings are really amazing in the sense that we have proven to ourselves to over eons time and time mm-hmm. again that we can survive um very dire circumstances um but the getting through the 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 moment or the the event that's transpiring is in some ways can be less challenging than the than the repercussion and like the the long-term effects yeah Hmm. which i think can be true in the science fiction realm too yeah definitely kind of i was interested in also in just the beginning of this how you conceive like what is sci-fi mm-hmm. and <laughs> I have, um, yeah. you know, I feel like a very layman's knowledge of like, mm-hmm. I've read some sci-fi, watched movies, but I don't really have very much contextualization or knowledge of like really what makes up sci-fi or like the canon. Yeah. Well, I think that's um, definitely up for debate. And uh, a lot of people feel very differently about it. <laughs> we've had a few meetings in our book club. Where we've read the most what, the recent one that sticks out in my mind. We read um, Ray Bradbury's The Illustrated Man, mm. which is a collection of short stories that are 
a lot of people would call Ray Bradbury, I guess we, we call him sci-fi light. So a lot of people see like a spectrum of what is science fiction and, and things fall in different kind of realms of that spectrum. So something like, um, I'm reading this book right now by Gregory uh, Benford. Benford? Benford, I think it is. Gregory Benford. It's called Timescape. Mm-hmm. And it's about... Uh, different physicists living in different eras uh, in England and the United States um, between 1968 and 1998. And in the 1998 time, it's not too dissimilar from our present where uh, climate change is having horrible effects all throughout the the world. And Mm -hmm. uh, there are some people who, uh, these, these physicists specifically are working on trying to communicate with the using something called a Tychon particle, which is like a theorized particle that can travel faster than the speed of light. Mm-hmm. And the, the suggestion is that if targeted appropriately, you would be able to use the particles to send a signal back in time and that signal like communicating via Morse code. Okay. Perhaps you could then send a message to the past. And then once you make that connection, um, you know, hopefully communicate something that could affect positive change uh and it's pretty technical the 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 descriptions that are going on and uh benford is one and and there's other um sf writers like larry niven comes to mind where they uh they work with physicists uh interstellar was similar you know where they 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 look at papers and they work with Mm -hmm. physicists or different scientists to try to get it as close to like theoretically possible even if it's outside of the realm of practically possible mm-hmm. if it's theoretically possible that kind of falls into like the hard sci-fi genre yeah. or uh, uh end of the spectrum uh versus the light sf which is ray bradbury and at our book club meeting for the illustrated man there was um one of our regular attendees awesome guy he was like this is not science fiction really and then kind of launched into this this um I don't know, diatribe, this like <laughs> proclamation that uh, science fiction is our genre and like literary writers are uh, taking advantage of it to sell books. It was kind of like his conjecture. And I, I don't know, man. I mean, that language is super problematic. Like anything <laughs> like our genre is, is, is tough. But at the same time, uh, you know, there's, there's something to be said for how sacred category categories become for people and and you want to be respectful of that um so all that to say uh for for my end of it uh i kind of categorize anything that deals with science and technology in some capacity i would consider science fiction okay um so you know if it's dave eggers i think most recent novel uh I think it's, I don't think he's published anything since, but The, the Circle, okay. which is kind of like a satirical story about a um, something like YouTube or uh, Facebook, that kind of like social media mm-hmm. culture, like Amazon, like those kind of uh, Google, like that sort of working environment. Uh, and it specifically follows one woman who gets like an entry level job there and then works her way up through this like crazy ladder. And the, the, it's, it's pretty zany. It's a great book. Uh, but it's it's showing one way in which technology affects society, right. and that to me, I would I would call that an SF book. Like okay. That it's speculative fiction. It's it's dealing with how science and technology, which to me are like in constant conversation with one another, yeah. um, affects 
humanity. Um, I don't know. Other people would definitely feel differently, though. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that it's very dangerous and, and limiting, like, unfortunately limiting to say, like, it has to have, you know, it has to have uh, scientific explanations or, right. or it has to have space battles because then it's like well you know like star wars is really more of a fantasy space opera it yeah. doesn't talk a lot about the technical aspects no. of it but at the same time like i don't know i think it's sf okay yeah yeah because i know i've i've read atwood's little argument on why she's speculative fiction mm-hmm. versus science fiction and right. i mean one of her main points is i don't go to space yeah <laughs> but like there are no aliens in my book right so it's, yeah like <laughs> Which is fine, and I think, I mean, I also think there's some some writers who understandably wouldn't necessarily want to be associated right. with science fiction. I mean, uh, you know, it's a, it's a genre that has um, a lot of problems in its past and a lot of very questionable behaviors because it, for so long, was a, a boys' club and, mm-hmm. like, a white boys' club, and that's the reality of it, and... Uh, the reality of the way in which a lot of people think about it. Now, that's not true about science fiction at all, because, I mean, arguably, the at least the type of science fiction we're talking about, like this ni- late 19th, 20th century, mm-hmm. a lot of people would agree that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is the first, first. science fiction, yeah. uh, like or one of the very first science fiction novels that really defines the genre. Right. Right? And, um, you know, there's, uh, there's this really great book uh, edited by... Um, Sheree Thompson, I'm not getting the names right, but the book's called Dark Matter. And it's uh, a collection of speculative fiction from the African diaspora going back mm-hmm. into late 19th century all the way up to, it was published in 2000, so it was, goes up to then. But there's there's books about, or there's short stories, it's mostly short stories um, about uh, time travel and um, speculative fiction that's that was written by African-Americans in like the very early 20th century. Yeah. And that's absolutely science fiction, I would say. And uh, clearly like not white boys clubs. So, yeah. um, I don't know. It's, it's like genres often are like complicated, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the title of your book club, science fiction classics. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cla- classics, classics of science, science fiction. fiction science. Um, it, one generally leaps to, Probably totally the famous white boys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we've read a lot. We've yeah, read a lot of you know Asimov and, and Robert Heinlein and um, mentioned Larry Niven and uh, some books like Two Thousand One or Ring World, which uh, uh, if you've ever played Halo or you're familiar with Halo, like mm-hmm. pretty much bit Larry Niven's idea of Ring World, which is this amazing. Uh, not 2D, but it's it's like a giant ring that's surrounding a star that okay. is that is a habitat, but it's like incomprehensibly large um, and made of a, and and actually it's kind of like the the Kepler star. I don't know if you've heard about that, yeah. but it's Kepler and then like a series of six numbers, like five one nine something mm-hmm. something. It's the one that people are like, oh, it's a Dyson sphere. Right. Um, that very recently there's been some sort of anomaly has been identified. Um, it's probably not a Dyson sphere. It's probably just a natural phenomenon. But that's it's still super <laughs> exciting and really neat. But Ring World is it's kind of like that. It's like something around, um, you know, th- those kind of yeah. We've read we've read a lot of those, and they're great. They're really mm-hmm. great books, uh, I think. And I and I think they're really fun to read for a lot of reasons. 
um, one, they have really neat ideas right. and fun and like the appealing. There's like, a reason cool why factor. a lot of people read them. Exactly. Books, yeah. yeah, and it's it's more than just because that's what gets published. Like they are, right. they are good books, yeah. um, very thoughtfully written, and these authors are uh, incredible and influenced lots of other authors. Yeah. Um, but then it's also I think can be especially interesting to read them and then kind of take a step to the side and think about its positionality within like a social context mm -hmm. and think about like, well, why, why is this popular? Like what, what about this book makes it, makes it popular? What about this book is problematic? And, like we, we like to really poke at the books. Um, yeah. and I, I think, uh, I, and I've, and I've been sensitive to the fact that sometimes our book club can maybe seem like we're just going to, sit and praise these like great works of mm -hmm. science fiction um and not that we don't do that also but it's uh you know it can be more complicated and, and critical than that but like in a constructive way we're also not just like tearing things apart i don't know i try to ride that middle line if that yeah, hasn't totally yet, like, <laughs> as much as possible you know yeah yeah i mean i think a lot of those like canon conversations are happening in all genres pretty mm -hmm. much um mm -hmm. Like just literary fiction, I guess. Yeah. In general, but which is great. Yeah, it's really cool, and it's nice. I don't know. It's a, for science fiction, especially since I feel like it deals with the future mm -hmm. and progress, or not progress, but mm -hmm. it's a, like a very the stakes are a little higher mm -hmm. in terms of like diversity in the can. You know, like how things end up for us. Like how do you picture a different world or the future? Yeah. In terms of social. Um, spheres is also really interesting yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's a really good point. I just recently read um, Samuel Delaney's Jules of Baptor mm -hmm. and uh, read it recently after um, uh, so in the last seven months um, myself uh, my partner Veronica and my friend Danny and then a couple other people but really the three of us uh, and Danny led the what we what we were calling the Dune Book Club. Okay. So we read through all six of Frank Herbert's books in seven Ooh. months. Yeah, oh it, my was, gosh. <laughs> it was very intense. Uh, seven months. I know, and I <laughs> I don't know that I'd say I'd recommend doing that, but I would recommend reading them for people that are interested in mm -hmm. sci-fi. And a lot of people have read the first one or at least seen the movie. Yeah, and it's good, but it's kind of like a very classic kind of Joseph Joseph Campbell like hero's journey, you know, right. and that sort of thing. But then after that. The next five books pretty much problematize the entirety of the first one, and I'd say arguably the last two books are the best two, yeah. um, for a number of reasons. One, they were written about twenty-five years later, and Herbert just wrote the entire time. And by the end of his of his writing career and the end of his life, he was a very, very accomplishedly like, tight writer and wrote. Mm -hmm. um, the last two are have a lot of different storylines going on that are pretty complicated, but work very well together. And he handles it very, very well. So that, like, just from a from like admiring writing standpoint, was really was really interesting. Um, but the 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 ideas that he throws around are are really huge. But the the entire Dune universe is dealing with the the highest like upper echelon of people that are in charge of these different kind of groups, mm -hmm. right? Um, which is a, also a pretty like common. Uh, uh, SF trope like yeah. that happens a lot, right? Like Where this you top yeah. hierarchy that you follow the people in charge, yeah. right? It's right. like which is which is interesting. I mean, it's like mm -hmm. Wes Anderson movies are popular because it's funny to like see rich people doing stuff, like people of power, like doing things and and 
Um, they also have access to resources that a lot of other people don't. Right. But so as reading that and then read Samuel Delaney's Jewels of Aptar, just like a novella, and that followed these uh, three characters that um, were, uh, when you're introduced to them and they're like living on the docks and one of them is a thief and they're not, they're not bad people at all. They have a very sound moral compass, but they're mm-hmm. just kind of normal people. And there's, there's a little bit uh, of kind of like a chosen one aspect going on, kind of, but the entire time it's brought into question up to the very end where it's like, well, you're not really the chosen one. You just, it's kind of like circumstance. Like you have, there's no like special ability. There's no position of privilege, but there's a tremendous amount of perseverance and there's, and there's uh, a level of determination. That's really interesting to watch these characters experience. Like these, those are, two very different approaches to what in some ways were kind of similar stories of, uh, you know, uh, overcoming, overcoming challenge and being in this kind of complicated gray situation of it's not totally clear what's right or what's wrong, but the characters you're following are having to figure that out as they're going through. But the, the position, the social position of the characters is completely different in a, in a very basic way. It's like, top rung versus bottom rung. And, mm-hmm. I, and I found that really interesting. And reading Delaney's book was totally refreshing um, because I had been so steeped in the Dune universe. Yeah. Not like it was bad at all, but it was just, it was neat to get to see something totally different. Is there, I mean, I think you've already mentioned a bunch of this, but like, obviously you started with sci-fi very mm-hmm. young and it's led through. Mm-hmm. Are there like specific things that you can pinpoint from your reading or watching of science fiction that you're like, oh, I, these are my favorite points mm-hmm. or like these are my favorite things to meditate on or why I keep going back. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I didn't really start reading a lot of science fiction until to working at the bookstore. And like mm-hmm. I said, you know, I was feeling a lot of right. kind of anxiety about how little <laughs> I was reading. And uh, when I was very young, uh, I liked to read. But then by the time I got middle school age, I went through something that a lot of people go through, which is like an adversity to, you know, feeling <laughs> totally adverse to, to learning at least anything extracurricular. Right. Um, but when I was like 20-ish, I was living in Boulder and I read Fahrenheit 451 and it was the first time I had read it. And I very vividly remember finishing that book, like sitting in a park and getting to the end of it. And it ends pretty open-ended and have you read Fahrenheit before yeah but not for a long time um no, no, that's fine but, <laughs> but <laughs> so you know the, the, just the, the general plot I mean I think it's one that most people are familiar with mm-hmm. where like firefighters are people who burn books and it's a it's a society like in which um people are terrified of knowledge and uh there's some eerily prescient aspects like uh his wife whose name is escaping me right now but she's sitting in her room that's that screens all around her and she has very involved relationships with her television Mm -hmm. family. And, uh, you know, again, like, like most SF it's hyperbolizing to a degree, but also is, um, kind of scary how spot on it can be in ways. But I remember finishing that book and, and, you know, getting to the last page and looking up and being in this park alone and looking around and just, feeling different, you know? And it wasn't like a religious awakening or anything like that, but it was definitely a moment where I was like, oh, I see things differently in my life now than I did before I read this book. And, um, you know, that could have been 
a lot of things. Like I said, I was living in Boulder, Colorado, which is a <laughs> bit of a crazy place. But uh, so there was, and I was 20, so there's like a lot of crazy things going on in my life. But that was a very distinct moment. And it was still several years before I started reading anything regularly, let alone science fiction. But that's one that, that really, really stuck with me. Um, and then also reading uh, Philip K. Dick and Kurt Vonnegut are two authors yeah. that, um, you know, deal with uh, like a, a, a number of interesting themes. Um, Philip K. Dick is pretty sure, I hope I'm not, but he's diagnosed schizophrenic and um, certainly like dealt with addiction and uh, you know that was something that is something that comes out a lot in his fiction mm -hmm. and in the science fiction and seeing it dealt with simultaneously uh, seriously as well as with levity was something that was very exciting for me to see happening on the page mm -hmm. um, because just thinking about um, any kind of what's you know identified as like a mental disorder or uh, any kind of challenge in, in that capacity dealt with in that way was was inspiring and encouraging um, without feeling like it was being dismissive. Yeah. And that, mm -hmm. that was really neat. And Vonnegut, similarly, I mean, he deals a lot with PTSD right. um, and not just individual PTSD, but the, the PTSD that a, that a society yeah. can and does experience following some sort of traumatic mm -hmm. event. Um and that about their fiction, I think, is really, it's really exciting. Yeah, they kind of bridge that gap between, I don't know, maybe, I feel like that gap is not really existent anymore, maybe never was, um, between, like, general literary fiction and science fiction. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I think that authors like that and Ray Bradbury, right. um, but also uh, Octavia Butler is another one yeah. that, that, can be really good, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, too, depending on the book. Some of her some of her stuff gets a little, um, her SF stuff, I actually haven't read much of the, her fantasy work, um, but just like a few of her um, more well-known science fiction or speculative fiction. Mm -hmm. But um, they, they can be really great entry points for people that are intimidated by science fiction or just think like, I don't want to read about space shit. You know, yeah, weird. I want to read about real life stuff, and it's like that's fair, like, I understand that. Um, but yeah, I think that those authors can be a really great way for people to, to see that there, there is a, a lot of really interesting things that happen in science fiction. Um, yeah. and the writing can also be beautiful, just right, just straight, you know, just very beautiful and, and thoughtfully and um, thoughtfully composed, but then also emoke, uh, evoke, uh, emotion that's um very powerful and actually octavia butler came to mind because kindred is one that we it was the first book we read for this year's lineup we, we do a new lineup of books oh, starting okay. in september every year and kindred was the first one that we read and uh it was it was very moving and the the book club discussion was very challenging yeah. um are you familiar with that i have not read actually any of Butler. okay uh that's all right that's all right that's <laughs> i mean Sometimes I envy when people haven't read something because that means <laughs> they get, get to, to yeah, yeah you get I to experience know. it. For <laughs> no, it's cool. Um, but so that's that's um, it's a time travel. I've been calling it like a time traveling slave narrative. That's really okay. what it's about. So it's it's a woman who's living in uh, 1973, 76, uh, Los Angeles, mm -hmm. uh, African American woman, uh, 
with a white husband who um, it, it gets explained, but she in the in the opening she like, inexplicably time travels back to antebellum Maryland uh, onto a plantation where she is faced with this this scenario in front of her where a uh, a little boy is drowning in the river and she instinctually of course like dives in and, and saves him and she pulls him out of the river and she gets him to the to the riverbed and then his mom comes running up and she's screaming and freaking out because here's this black woman wearing jeans like holding her son and it's like not only is that a black woman but she's wearing pants like what's happening (laughs) and she's freaking out and then his dad comes and he's got a shotgun and he puts it in her face and then boom she time time travels back to 1973 and then like the book goes from there whoa right wow i have to read that now six six episodes (laughs) yeah it's really it's a it's a fantastic book and I mean, so that's one, too, that people would say, oh, that's not really science fiction, but I'd say it is. Yeah, because what, what else would it be? Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, certainly literary fiction, you can maybe put it in the historical fiction category, mm. but you could also just put it into all of them. Yeah. Because genres are really helpful kind of guide guideposts, right, yeah. that help kind of give context and definition to a conversation. But once a genre becomes rigid, I think it becomes useless. Or at least dangerous, but yeah. I would argue useless. So is there anything that um, I haven't asked you that you want to talk about? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that I can tell you what I've said. I feel like I've just time traveled however long. Now you're here. Um, now I am here. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I I also, I guess I'd also like to talk a little bit about um, some of the very funny things that we've read in oh, early yeah. science fiction. Um, so there's this book by... Alfred Bester called The Demolished Man, mm-hmm. um, in which uh, telekinesis and um, so ESP, where you're able to communicate, um, mental yeah. communication, yeah. is uh, people, people who are capable of that, not everyone, but there are people who are capable of that, is mm-hmm. ubiquitous throughout society. Okay. And uh, it's kind of minority report asking that um, there has not been a murder committed in like a century or something like that or half a century or whatever because of this. So uh, the people who have this power are, are the police officers. Okay. And uh, that book in particular is like this awesome crime drama, kind of like Clue because the there's the character that you follow, which is another, this is another thing that SF does that I really like is he's a bad guy, like a very bad guy and he's going to kill somebody and he's going to get away with it. Like that's, that's the premise. Okay. Um, which is it's like it's kind of fun to follow the bad guy. Is that you know? like a sci-fi trope? That it, uh, I think. I mean, it, it following yeah, the bad guy. Yeah, I guess it definitely happens. Yeah, you. I've read books where it's like interspersed, but mm-hmm. then here's the bad guy storyline. Mm-hmm. Okay, and not just a uh, anti-hero like Holden Caulfield. No, you know, like just, just like, but like guy. no, this is the bad guy, right? <laughs> right, like uh, Dune to Dune, and another thing that SF does is where you follow uh, several different points of view I mean that's that's a common mm. thing but it, in lots of fiction but so you're following lots of different points of view including the villains okay. which which can be really uh, interesting to see that point of view especially yeah. when an author, author pulls it off well sorry um, I interrupted you. that's okay <laughs> uh, but it's like the, the demolished man it's like this this um, like crime solving adventure caper where people are able to communicate and there's murder going on and all this drama but then in the middle of it there's just this kind of break where they're just like having a cocktail party and like telling these silly jokes where they're projecting images to each other's brains and like 
I'm like, oh, isn't this funny? We're so rich. And like, it's like, what is, what is this doing in the middle of this adventure? But I don't know. It's there. And um, another one of my favorites is in this book called The Skylark of Space, written by E.E. E. Smith, which uh, is um, like kind of a classic pulp science fiction uh, space opera and considered one of the first space operas. There's this scene where uh, the hero, Dick Seaton, is blasting through space in his giant steel ball spaceship because in the 1920s, like if you needed to go really far or deep into space, then you just made something like bigger and out of more steel. And then it would like go <laughs> yeah, further. Yeah. And uh, he brings him and his, um, I can't remember the, the his frenemy because it's like the villain, but he's also, they kind of like work together kind of like begrudgingly, like, er, we have to do this industry <laughs> together. They are on this ship and then, Dick Seaton brings like his girlfriend with so that she can like make sandwiches and like make sure that their laundry's taken <laughs> care of, like on the ship. She's their housekeeper. And exactly. And there's this great scene where she is trying to make sandwiches for everyone, but they're in space, so there's no gravity. <laughs> and their solution is they take out a birdcage and like put all the sandwich materials inside the birdcage and then close it and she puts her hand inside the birdcage so everything will stay contained and she assembles the sandwiches inside this birdcage while they're in a huge steel ball it's like whipping through outer space. Where else are you going to read that? That's a crazy thing to happen, but it happens in the Skylark of Space. I like so. that just because the author was like, how are they going to make sandwiches? How am I going to solve this problem? How do I solve the sandwich problem? I like to imagine in like at home, you know, just the next, like after a night of writing and just hits this massive roadblock, like, oh my God, how am I going to deal with this sandwich scene? I think there's no gravity in space. What am I going to do? How do you get mayo on bread when there's no gravity? <laughs> Birdcage, clearly. Birdcage. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> that is wonderful. <laughs> Science fiction is, though it can be depressing or um, yeah. scary, kind of, mm-hmm. can also be, like, delightful. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like, zany and silly. Yeah. And, and, like, we were talking about at the beginning, the technological wonder can just be really uh, interesting to see what kind of things... Uh, come up and Jules Verne's The Paris in the 20th Century, which was written in 1863, about 1963. And it was actually like an unfinished novel that that was never officially published. It was published posthumously and like fell, found in his, um, like in his safe or something like mm-hmm. that. And, you know, his estate published it. But there are some things that he really got like spot on. Like there's mass transit that's, um, that's very similar to the, to the kind of like subway systems that exist and uh, things that did not exist in 1863 right. that he identifies. But then amongst all of these things that he, that he gets pretty spot on uh, rather than like some sort of digital communication or something like that for the, the, I believe it's in the stock market. There's a character whose job is to take the numbers and then like paint them on this giant piece of like a revolving paper. Like of all the things that he got right <laughs> technologically, like uh, communication, there's handheld uh, communication devices like cell phones, pretty yeah. much all of that, no problem. But then, like a digital printout, couldn't get it. <laughs> you know, Scanner Darkly, I think it is. Or there's yeah. there's another Dick novel where similar, like they're they're reading the the telefax or the teletype news, where it's it's coming to them automatically in their home on their little device. That's you know that's that's in their apartment or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's a piece of paper that's printed out. Like rather than an iPad, which is what right. we actually have, but it's like so close. Yeah, it's, it's like, so close. 
I saw um, Ursula Gwen when she was oh, the other day, and she was, so awesome. someone asked her what she would change about. It was about uh, Lathe of Heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but they asked her what she would change about it now, because it's, and she's like, well, nothing really. But like, classic. <laughs> I, I wrote, yeah. yeah, no, that's what most of her responses were like, yeah. no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but she's like, but I got a lot of things wrong. And it was great. She's like, one of them is um, the internet. Didn't guess that, obviously. <laughs> no one's, no one's so using the internet. And she's like, and uh, if you notice, there are no cars in that book. I thought by now, because it's like roughly set 21st century yeah. round now, I think. Right. Um, she's like, I thought there would be no cars, no cars anymore. I thought we would have gotten beyond that. <laughs> What a bummer. Yeah. I wish she was right on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, on the on the other side of that, there are bedtimes where people have been uh, really spot on. There's this great video of Arthur C. Clarke, a news interview, and I think it's on his Wikipedia page, where he, it's like the 19, late 60s or early 70s. They're, they're, and no, it has to be the 70s because there's a, reasonably sized personal computer that he's standing in front of and he's having a conversation with this newscaster and he's like, in the future, computers even smaller than this will be in everybody's home, everywhere, all around the world and they'll all be connected through this elaborate network, this elaborate communication network and everybody will be able to talk to everyone at the same time and you'll do your shopping there, all of your central communication, Uh all of your banking, all of your uh, business will be done directly from this terminal that everybody has in their own home. And the look on the... And Clark was pretty, he was pretty old at this point. And yeah. the look on the, the newscaster's face is like, this old man is so crazy. Like, <laughs> I can't believe I have this assignment. But he couldn't have been more right. I mean, yes. Yeah. And, and at that point, it was, it's not, I mean, that semblances of that were starting to, to develop. And, mm-hmm. But it really was at a very, very early stage at best, the, the timing of this video. And uh, to be so accurate with how how it is, yeah. I mean, you know, that's amazing. This thing that we're doing right now is dependent on that infrastructure. It's like that's really very very exciting. So when that kind of stuff happens, it's yeah, it's neat and kind of spooky. It's like, are you a time traveler? Maybe. <laughs> did you just <laughs> come, did you, did you come <laughs> back from the future? <laughs> that is um, going back a little bit, but I was thinking about like how mm-hmm. prominent sci-fi and fantasy both of those but with like uh, children's and like young adult novels and it I mean mm-hmm. like there's a lot of sci-fi elements to a lot of like that's a huge part of that mm-hmm. whole book industry um, and it, it's like I remember that's the stuff I watched as a kid mm-hmm. it's just really interesting that that's like the focus of like children and then you kind of grow yeah. away out of it but then now it's huge again and I don't know like yeah. the I don't know if it's just imagination-wise or that you can have a little bit more fun with it. There's, a, like, a lot more bending of rules or... I don't no. know. I think that's part of it, certainly. I mean, children are wonderfully notorious for being more willing to suspend right. disbelief and, and entertain fantastic ideas mm-hmm. um, that are part of what make what makes human beings so majestic and, like, such an amazing thing to get to be a part of is because... The, some of the ideas that we have and accomplish are just overwhelmingly beautiful and fantastic, and it's really that's really neat. Um, we were—I was just at a lecture that was like, a, actually, it was the same night 
the Glen was there. Mm-hmm. There was another one that at, at my work that I got to attend with a science communicator who works for NASA, uh, who was in town for the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Symposium that was this past week uh, at the EMP. And that's this very, very small part of NASA that um, entertains like these SF-esque ideas and uh, like space-based power stations, for example. So like an array of uh, photocells in space that capture solar energy and then using microwaves beam it down to the planet, uh, to a collection facility. And, and this is a real thing yeah. <laughs> that Japan's presently working on. They plan to deploy their first one by 2040, which in, um, in, the, U- in the United States is like the furthest future you could possibly think of, like 2040, like, whoa, my gosh, that's, you know, that's like so far in the future. But for Japan and lots of other places in the world, that's a very soon and very realistic goal, which is incredibly exciting, I think. Um, but we were talking about how Presently, there has been this kind of resurgence, or it feels like there's been a resurgence in interest in space travel, um, in movies like Interstellar, in Gravity, in the Europa Project that mm-hmm. all very recently came out and were yeah. very successful. Um, and one point was made that science fiction has been popular for a very long time, right? Like 2001 right. Space Odyssey is one of the most famous movies, and Star Wars, obviously, right. and you know uh, the Star Trek series, like all of those are very very popular and well-known. Um, but one thing that we, we talked about briefly was how the the shuttle the shuttle missions in the 80s were, um, I mean, I remember them very vividly as being such an exciting time uh, of this vision of the kind of future we were going to live in where everybody was going to be able to go to space all the time and, right. you know, we'd have moon colonies. And, like, that's something that had been thought about. But at that point, it felt like, oh, no, this could actually happen. And... Um, on one hand, a lot of the people who were young, when that was huge and, and at its kind of in its heyday of sorts, are now in positions of of power, of leadership. Yeah, yeah. You know, our our creative directors are you know at a at a place where they are getting to put their ideas out there. And then on the other side of that, with the shuttle program being cut and ending, mm-hmm. there's almost this like sense of loss. And, uh, you know, we love nostalgia. People love to be nostalgic for things. So, like, these coming up with movies and books that uh, The Martian is another right. another example that uh, what if, like, what if the shuttle missions hadn't been stopped? What if we had mm. kept going and what if we had kept funding that? And um, what would the future look like then? Uh, so, I don't know. I think I think there's a little bit of both there. You know, yeah. I think that we we get into a nostalgia loop where it's like things that we loved when we were kids mm-hmm. come back and, you know you, yeah you lose touch with it for a little bit at some point because it's not cool anymore to like what you liked when you were a kid but then sure. then it gets to a point where it's like it's really cool yeah. to like what you liked <laughs> when you were a kid and um that's great i think i guess um if if people are only going to read like a, a few science fiction books mm-hmm. i think the yeah. my favorite stuff to encourage people to check out is the the early 20th the late 19th and early 20th century. So specifically Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, if you haven't read that one before, or if you haven't read it since high school, like yeah. read it again. It's uh, it's an amazing book. And there's another one that I often encourage people to read called The Purple Cloud um, by uh, J.P. Scheel. And it's one of the earliest kind of last person on earth stories. Um, and it's about an anarchic Ant- Antarctic expedition and it has murder and deception and like um 
familial quarreling and adventure, but then also these very, I think, uh, not unlike Frankenstein, it, it explores these very deep kind of philosophical questions of what does it mean to be a human being and to live within uh, not only the society of humans, but live within the, the, the organism that is the planet. And mm. I guess that's kind of my, my favorite stuff about science fiction is oftentimes it, it puts human beings in a position of um, existing as, as one piece of this greater, this greater like cosmos or, or the planet. And uh, I think that's a really important way to think about, about being. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. And I can list tons of books too, like Contact by Carl Sagan. Mm-hmm. If you haven't read that one, the movie's like, whatever but the the book is (laughs) awesome and like even if you just read the last third for the super crazy trip through a wormhole that may or may not happen totally happens it's awesome (laughs) uh yeah and then like Wynn and Atwood and I don't know I could give a huge list of yeah Oryx and Crake the whole like Year of the Flood series is I know it's very very powerful and Handmaid's Tale of course yeah that's a good one um that's like would you consider Handmaid's Tale sci-fi it's like a dystopian. Yeah, dystopian. I always get confused on right? dystopian because it, they usually tend to be science fictional, but I, right. it's hard to tell. Science fiction-ish. Yeah. You know, I think... I guess, once again, we're back to that. Right. <laughs> right. The conversation about genres. Yeah. So I think, you know, uh, SF can be safe because then it means speculative fiction or right. science fiction, depending <laughs> on who we're talking to. And, uh, but I, I think, I don't know, I guess... The most exciting part is reading books that are going to expand your mind and totally. push you to think about new stuff. Yeah. And um, it seems that SF tends to be that genre. So anything mm-hmm. that kind of falls into that category is at least SF-ish. Yeah. yeah. I love that one. I'm really excited for um, the HBO series. I know. That going to be I think it'll be great. I hope. I think it would. It would make sense. It seems like that would be really, really good. On yeah. screen, I'm scared. <laughs> uh, it is scary, but I think that's that's another thing about science fiction. There's a there's a sci-fi channel uh, mini series of Children of Dune, which is the third. I think it's yeah, it's just the third Dune book, and it's leaps and I mean, it's still it's a sci-fi it's a like sci-fi channel series. Like, yeah, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but it's leaps and bounds beyond the movie, uh, and I think that SF lends itself really well to to miniseries. I mean, novels in general do, right? Because totally. it's just so much to try to slam into a movie and that's why they often are not very good. Now, well, go to io9.com or just look up io9 and mm-hmm. uh, Google weird science fiction if uh, <laughs> if that's what you're into. Because there's, you can you can find like plenty of lists that are like 100 science fiction books you should have read or like mm-hmm. classic science, you know, there's tons of stuff and, and a lot of stuff that falls in those lists are really good and um, there's also a lot of really new things that that I have read or at least I'm familiar with that are also really interesting, like Ernest Klein's Ready Player One. That's a crazy vision future. Movie's yeah. coming out soon. Oh, there's um, a movie. Recommend reading the book first. Uh, uh, and then uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's 2312, where there's what I one thing I really love about that is humans have been able to not only capture asteroids, but like hollow them out and turn them into specific ecosystems in order to harvest them for energies or resources or whatever, but also use them as modes of travel. So we're traveling throughout the solar system inside of asteroids. And some of them are like dance clubs and like crazy, <laughs> like party habitats. It's pretty zany. So, awesome. um, but yeah, io9 has a couple of 
two lists in particular that are like weird SF you've never read, and there's some stuff on there that is super weird. So if you like to get your brain broke, like that's that's some good stuff to check out. Cool. My last question is dumb, but I figured since we mentioned both Star Wars or Star Trek, <laughs> uh, it's hard, but Star Wars. <laughs> it's hard, but Star I Wars. Know my yeah. How excited are you for the new movie? I'm very excited. That looks I think great. That it'll be good. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the prequels were tough. It was a tough time <laughs> for a lot of people, you know, myself included. I'm not going to say I haven't watched them all at least like six or seven times because I have. If you watch them with Riff Tracks, they're even better. Ooh. Definitely check out rifftracks.com. They do. Uh, they riff all six of the of the movies. They're great. But um, four through six for me are are, you know. They're iconic. I love yeah. them. So they're great movies. Cool. <laughs> well, thank you so yeah, much. Thank you, Mary. Thanks this for inviting really me. really fun. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it. I cannot thank Alex enough for coming on Sorry Cheshire Cat. He provided so many recommendations. So if you're interested in getting into anything he talked about, the whole list is there on our Tumblr with links provided. So you should follow us on there. You should also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the most recent updates and episodes. And reach out if you have any questions about the podcast or want to be on it. I look forward to hearing from you. Talk to you soon.